I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's another busy week of tennis. I'm James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got tennis writer George Belshaw and guesting today, Abigail Johnson, uh, our resident tennis commentator, to give us yet another profession on the podcast. This is Tennis Unfiltered. Five, four, three, two, one. We've obviously got loads to get through today, but it would be remiss of me not to introduce Abigail to the podcast. Well, I think, Abigail, I'm, I'm trying to think if you've ever been on with us before but maybe in a different incarnation but it's certainly your first time on tennis unfiltered given we've only been called that for about three weeks yeah this is actually my debut completely across the board i think so thank you for the welcome and to calvin who may be listening from afar um, i hope (laughs) i keep your seat sufficiently warm here in your absence Um, i will try and live up to your lofty standards well you've got a lot more hair than calvin you're already winning on that one (laughs) I was going to say, his head's unfortunately going to be cold because he didn't quite get the ratings we needed in for the cowboy hat. Yeah, thank you to... Um, there was certainly one request for Calvin to wear his cowboy hat on the plane to Texas. Uh, Abigail, if you don't know, Calvin was boasting about a lovely cowboy hat that he has and we were trying to convince him to wear it I did hear that on the, last, uh, on the last episode, yeah. There we go. Okay. But we've unfortunately not picked up well, we, we said if we got five five-star reviews that specifically mentioned it, um, then he would. But we unfortunately got two. Uh, thank you to Smurphy924, oh. who says, I absolutely love, love, love the show. Cannot wait for Mondays. Welcome back to America, Calvin. I wish I lived closer to Dallas. Good luck to your boys. Um, thanks, Smurphy, for that one. And also to Amy and Dude, who simply replied, who simply reviewed with three emojis, one of which was the cowboy emoji. The hundred and the round of applause. Insightful and entertaining tennis commentary. Thank you very much for those two five-star reviews this week. We really appreciate them um, when they come around. Uh, and I'm sorry that we didn't get five of them and we could have made Calvin wear his cowboy hat on the plane, which would have been super embarrassing. Um, but alas, 
uh, I, I'm not going to be making similar bets for like wearing a hat with corks on it to fly to Australia and things because, well, A, there isn't an emoji for that and B, I desperately don't want to do that. Um, and it would give you a lot more time to sort it out. Right, let's move on because we've actually got quite a lot of tennis to go through. Uh, that was the first thing George said to me today. He said, oh, actually, there's quite a lot going on this week, which is actually pretty much what George says to me every week before I hit record. <laughs> oh, there's actually quite a lot going on this week. Yes, George. It turns out tennis quite busy, um, as Abigail well knows, and I well know from having actual jobs in tennis. And George just dips in and out when he when he feels is appropriate. Uh, we're going to start with Novak Djokovic, <laughs> which must be a phrase i have said uh, i don't know 40 50 times uh, in this is podcast uh, but it seems like the obvious place to start given given what's been going on over the last seven days uh, craig tiley came out and was very talkative which is uh, very much craig tiley's modus operandi uh, and he said he said and i'm not going to say revealed for reasons that will become clear he said uh, djokovic played the australian open with a three centimeter tear in his hamstring um, that it was pretty incredible that he did it. That has been obviously questioned. Uh, we on this podcast openly questioned the Djokovic hamstring injury. Um, Dr. Peter Larkins, who's the sort of resident big mouth doctor in Australia, he, he's someone who likes to talk and he's quite well qualified, um, says if it's a tear, it's possible, um, but it's very hard to imagine that it was a three centimetre tear. He said, I'm wondering if Craig is confusing signal of three centimetre in distance in an MRI hamstring signal can mean some inflammation or some swelling. It doesn't necessarily mean a tear. Um, George, do we now have to accept that Novak Djokovic was actually injured or are we still going to keep our tin hats on? (laughs) I think I've been the most neutral in this whole subject, to be fair. No, I mean, that's always true. Literally always true. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I still don't believe he's got a three centimetre tear in his hamstring. Um, (laughs) And I've enjoyed this uh, Peter Larkin's analysis around it. He was, I think, my favourite quote about this was like, "If you take a three a piece of steak and cut a three centimetre hole in it, steak is muscle, and it's very hard to do the level of performance." I've not seen many steaks running around. (laughs) I've never tried to get. I've never tried to get performance out of a sirloin. To be fair, other than slipping down my gullet at maximum speed. Uh, I don't know how helpful that is. Yeah, I mean, it is it is pretty staggering. Look, the thing is that I don't. I mean, Calvin aside, because and he will defend himself. I'm sure. I don't think any of us ever doubted there was something wrong with him, Abigail. Like, like it. There obviously was because even the most Machiavellian, insane person wouldn't do what he did unless there was something, even very minor, wrong. But. I don't know. I don't know where you stand on it. How injured do you think he was? Yeah, it, it was an interesting journey because I was actually courtside during the match in which he picked up this injury. So it was the semi-final in Adelaide against Medvedev. And and I felt like a, a terrible commentator at that point. Like I was not on commentary for this match, but I was sat courtside to observe. And I only realized something had happened when I, I noticed that Djokovic was completely changing how he was contesting the whole match. So he was playing against Daniil Medvedev at this point, um, Adelaide semis. And he was suddenly charging up the court. And I was like, hang on a minute. He he was not playing like this a few minutes ago and it's not working out incredibly well for him. And then someone said he'd made this movement and he'd done something to his hamstring and he was definitely uh, making movements towards it and was not the same for the rest of that match. So I agree with what you've said that to a degree, there was clearly something wrong. 
Um, I was commentating on his second round match at the Australian Open against Enzo Quacco. And I, I was actually, I said to someone, I, I think I should have got Novak to pay half my flight back to the UK because I left during the men's final so I couldn't commentate on it and uh, the only time I was on commentary for Djokovic during the Australian Open was the time he lost the set so I think it was very <laughs> beneficial to him that I was out of the country at that point but um, yeah again it, that was a moment where it looked like it flared up and it, he certainly seemed to be hampered by it frustrated by it and Again, I thought, okay, well, something's causing him difficulty here. And it was a very strange situation because it went from that to him in his next match looking completely unfazed, moving well, uh, being able to endure in these long rallies. And the conclusion that I personally came to, because I'm no doctor and I'm not Novak Djokovic, so I can't feel what he's feeling, is the same conclusion that I came to when I, w I was reporting on one of Andy Murray's matches against, I think it might have been the Roberto Bautista Agut match when he was like 35 hours into his tournament or whatever it was <laughs> at that point. And uh, I said to whoever was with me at the time, I can't remember who, I said, okay, so Andy Murray, he's moving great, isn't he? Yes, comes the agreement. Uh, no trouble moving side to side. No trouble investing in these rallies. Correct. Yes, agreement comes. I said, so why are we still talking about the fact that he's got a metal hip? Like, how long <laughs> do we talk about that for? At what point do we stop? You know, I, I mean, for a moment and for a while, it's an incredible story. But I mean, if he's moving fine and if he's competing at this incredible level during the rallies, as he was in Australia, he'd worked himself to a great level of competitiveness. Why is it relevant? And I kind of took on that viewpoint with the whole Djokovic thing in that looking at Murray and trying to analyze him by looking at what was going on during the points was really distracting because it, we know what Andy Murray's like. He walk around at the back of the court. He's holding this. He's holding that. He's annoyed. He's yelling. And, and that in terms of trying to analyze where the match was going, that was really off-putting looking at Murray between the points compared to Murray during the points. And I just took on that same position with Djokovic really. And that all I know and all I can see and all that I'm aware of is what is happening during the points. And if he can move fine during the points and if he can produce this outrageous level, that's ultimately all I care about as a commentator. I was just going to say, I mean, Murray's quite an interesting comparison really in terms of, um, uh, I'm not going to try and defend Djokovic here because I don't think the injury is as bad as it is. But I think if you watch Murray play a lot and the attitudes kind of around Murray or the way it's spoken about, you know, there's so many times in matches where he's walking around like he looks like he's about to die or he's been shot and he's kind of hobbling around and you're thinking, oh, oh no, here we go again. It's a tough day for Andy oh, Murray. Yeah. And then suddenly he's bolting. Like, mediocre Andy Murray impression. What a surprise. <laughs> and then he's... <laughs> And then he's bolted around the court at 100 miles an hour the next point. And, you know, no one really chases Murray that often being like, oh, he's feigning injuries, causing problems. You know, he's trying to get an opponent's head. But there probably is a degree to that, to be honest. Like, And it's not just a Djokovic thing, but Djokovic does also take it to a level that does wind people up. And, you know, in years gone by, you've had Federer calling him out for his behaviour on court. You've had, you know, he's got quite a long rap sheet of other things that, you know, maybe Murray gets off Scott free for. But I do sometimes think Novak uh, can get a bit of uh, over-treatment on some of these things, particularly thing about like Nadal as well. Nadal's a long time over the years used to take the old time violation, go on about how terrible he's feeling, and then 
suddenly be absolutely just twatting through everyone at the French Open. You're like, well, that was a waste of everyone's time, wasn't it? Yeah, he literally did it at Roland Garros last year, didn't he? And, you know, I, I think what was clever about what he did at Roland Garros is before the tournament, he said, look, I've got a problem. My doctor's here all week. Like, can we just not talk about it until after the tournament? And obviously, we still talked about it and relentlessly talked about it because it, it's a point of interest. But he didn't get asked about it again. And it wasn't like an Adal-led thing. And I think what's clever about that from a sort of PR perspective is maybe he still wanted people to talk about it. But the best way to get anyone to not talk about something is to say, sorry, straight away, can I just say, can we not talk about that? Because you know, as soon as they leave the room, that's all they're going to be talking about. So maybe maybe that's the the genius bit. Um, Just on, you know, Abigail, you're talking about on the court. And I think you're right to an extent that if he's playing bloody well and he was, then does it really matter if he's, you know, he might only have one leg, but if he's playing really well, maybe there's no point in talking about his absent leg. Um, it kind of plays into a comment we got on YouTube this week from, and I think it says Almus. Um, this is probably YouTube handles, they're impossible to pronounce. Uh, Joker is the only <laughs> player who ever manages to compensate for aging by playing better and better every year. Uh, and no one told him to do it. He understood it and did it himself about which he regularly informs us through interviews. Unlike him, Nadal's short bursts of good results depend on his muscles and strength and cannot compensate for his for muscles with his talent or different style. Roger tried, but he succeeded only in the absence of the best version of Joker, which brought him the last three majors. That's why we are seeing this phenomenon for the first time, pure dominance in someone's 35th year. Um, quite aside from... There's some stuff in there that we can move past, which is the endless Roger Rafa Novak uh, conversation. But what I did want to say, Abigail, is do you think we'll see more of this super aggressive, hard hitting Djokovic that it felt like was an evolution at this tournament in terms of the way he was playing? I mean, why not? If it's got that level of success, it is what I'd start by saying. I also feel that there are elements of Djokovic that are underappreciated because he's so well-rounded. I think what, if anything, was highlighted in Australia, it was him as a complete package. Like, even his weaknesses, like the overhead smash that used to be an opening, isn't really there anymore. He's just so complete. And because he's so thorough a player, it's very hard to pinpoint different elements of what makes Djokovic the champion that he is. And I, I think as well, because of the the makeup of him as a player and because there are such kind of obvious big hitters in the tour, I think Djokovic in general is hitting a harder ball than people can appreciate from the outside. I've spoken to players that have gone up against him for the first time and said, I was shocked at how low and fast his shots are traveling, which they've only been able to appreciate once they're on the other side of the net. I think the things that we're drawn to immediately with Djokovic are his flexibility, his endurance, his ability to use the pace that's coming at him. And there's just something about Djokovic that makes it actually hard to read from the outside how hard he is consistently hitting that ball I, I don't think it's necessarily a new thing maybe it's been more apparent recently and maybe there have been other factors like we mentioned the, the injury that have led him to be a little bit more aggressive a little bit earlier than he might have been uh, but but I definitely think that yeah he he's not been given as much credit for that consistent heavy ball and the consistent rally pace that maybe other players are because it's more of a standout feature of their game yeah, the the other thing you actually hear about him quite a lot is how 
um, every ball the opponent hits is slightly different, whether it be a slightly different spin, slightly different pace, slightly different length. Like, I think he, you're right, Abigail, it's particularly hard on TV, I think, to really appreciate kind of Djokovic's brilliance because it's not as flashy as Roger, it's not as flashy as Nadal. And as you say, you know, when he springs out wide, that is quite flashy in the sense, like, how the hell's this bloke got his legs in that position? But the key to success is like the forehand as well as much of the backhand. The backhand looks great because it's like harder to be that solid. But the forehand, he just controls beautifully. It's such a good shot. The angles he gets, the length, the consistency, it's it's horrible to play against. And I I don't think you can truly appreciate the spins, the powers that's coming on the ball um, unless you make it as obvious as Rafa does where he's like winding up like a windmill every time. And you think, oh, you can tell there's a lot of spin on that ball because it's flying up. But yeah, yeah, Novak's subtlety probably does catch people out. Subtlety is a a perfect word to use because it's so... It's almost hidden amongst everything else because there are so many moving parts of Djokovic. And uh, again, it's... uh, there are so many different things to highlight from his game that things like that can get lost in the thick of it. I, I think even the key elements such as his serve gets missed out because he's such a great returner. So everyone's talking about the return when actually the serve has, you know, in, in that period a few years back when he was struggling, I, I felt like the serve was kind of seeing him through to an extent at that point. So, um, yeah, no, he, he's a fascinating kind of a subject of discussion for me, Djokovic, because there's uh yeah there's so much going on there and he he's just he is the most complete player in the world now i'm not just talking the best i'm talking the most complete in terms of where's his weakness uh that that is i i think what makes him so great and uh yeah it, it's still incredible to watch it play out it's a three centimeter weakness just sort of midway through his hamstring <laughs> that's basically all we've got now um mo- moving on okay, from on. novak djokovic uh how, now that we've had kind of a week or so post-Australian Open, Abigail, you're obviously back in England now. George, you have never moved from your sofa. Um, how <laughs> do we kind of, Abigail, how do we reflect on the Australian Open? What do you think it will be remembered for? Because I always think with Grand Slams, there's, there's stuff that happens during it. And you're like, that was amazing. That was amazing. But in two years time, when I say 2023 Australian Open, what do you think you will remember it for most? This is such a fascinating question because I feel like I should remember it most for number 10 for Novak Djokovic because that that's something that is phenomenal. We're on what I consider the most neutral surface in tennis, hard courts. That's supposed to be the leveler, the one that everyone can play on, that there's no advantage given to any person. And yet Novak Djokovic has just won 10 Grand Slam titles on this neutral surface on one of the biggest stages of the sport. Best of five set tennis has never lost a final. I mean, it's an outrage. And I think it's played down because of what Rafael Nadal has been doing at Roland Garros. I mean, hmm. what I mean, phenomenal, extraordinary stuff out there that I think has just meant that this achievement for Djokovic has been played down a little bit. Also, the field was different that Djokovic came through at this particular tournament. So so as much as that is a just an incredible accomplishment, um, I, I don't think in a couple of years' time, for me personally, that is what will stand out. The thing that will stand out for me is Grand Slam number one for Arena Sabalenka because I did not for a while think that Sabalenka was going to get a major. Uh, When she was first coming through, the firepower that she's capable of was breathtaking. And I thought, wow, for sure this girl wins a major at some point in time. 
And then she got into that dangerous kind of Alina's Vitalina, Karolina Pliskova stage where she was going deep at these big tournaments and not getting across the line. And I thought, okay, well, mentality is becoming a little bit of an issue. I don't really see much movement in your game. You can take the racket out of your opponent's hands, but at some point over seven matches, you're going to come up against someone who's going to make you play enough balls so that you come undone, which is definitely what we saw happen against Leila Fernandez at the US Open in 2021. She wiped her off the court for a set and a half and then Fernandez as she does made some extra balls fought her way through played the match and watched Sabalenka fall apart but she has been a revelation to me Sabalenka the past month in terms of the balance that she's found in her game a little bit more depth but also the confidence to keep producing with the big ground strokes as well the stability she's uncovered in the serve it is so rare as well players that are not the dominant force in the sport to win a title pre-tournament and then come through and win the Grand Slam. So I had question marks about Sabalenka throughout the event and she answered every single one emphatically. I think her attitude is exemplary. I think that's been the foundation for bringing it all together and whether she goes on to win more Grand Slams or not. And I think that's a big possibility for her now. Uh, The 2023 Australian Open will always be Arena Sabalenka's tournament for me. I think she really established herself as one to keep track of for the next few years. Yeah, and it's the as I, as I said on previous podcasts, it's the first time, I think, in about five years that I've not said the phrase, I think this is the year Arena Sabalenka wins a Grand Slam. So I don't even get <laughs> I told you so right, infuriatingly. Uh, George, what do you think you'll remember this, this tournament for? Uh, I think I I've broadly agree with Abigail there. I think the, the other slightly Djokovic thing I'm quite interested in now is a kind of broader point in men's tennis of how we've had Djokovic, Wimbledon, Alcaraz, US Open, Djokovic, Australian Open. I see that as the, I know Alcaraz wasn't at this tournament, so it feels almost redundant to say this in some ways, given there's a question about the Australian Open. But I think when you look back in history, you sometimes look at the span of Grand Slams that are going to happen. And I think that's the pattern we're going to be seeing one way or another over the next two or three years and the real tussle between these guys and, Feels like, you know, when Novak was unable to play in Australia in the US Open last year and Alcaraz was flying in that first half of the season, everyone was starting to think, well, even if Novak's coming back anyway, this this kid's really going to give him a lot of problems. Um, and the response has been pretty darn emphatic from Novak to get back to number one, pick up number 10. Alcaraz has been not the same player since the US Open for one reason or another. You know, there's been injuries and it's also perhaps a bit of a dip after the US Open, but I think most of us are thinking this guy's going to come back and be the guy who really pushes Novak hard. Um, so I'm just quite excited about that and think this could be an interesting kind of footnote period in what could be a great rivalry for the next couple of years. And what's kind of fascinating is that um, Djokovic and Alcaraz have never played on a hard court. And like uh, now the the vaccine requirements in America are being lifted, I think, in May. So that will take the handbrake off Novak Djokovic's hardcore career. But up until this point, they've virtually been unable to play at big hardcore tournaments because Djokovic, well, Alcaraz didn't break through until, you know, beginning of 2022, end of 2021. And uh, and Djokovic has been banned from basically all the big hardcore tour. I mean, I was just thinking, like, are there any currently big hardcore tournaments on the men's tour outside the US? Because... Or, or well, there's one in Canada, obviously, but that's the same deal. The, the other one that's been cancelled was obviously Shanghai. Yeah, as you say, like Shanghai. so there are, there really aren't any. Like so, unless he wants to play them at a five hundred, 
which it's quite hard to get two top 10 players in the same 500 draw and actually get them to play each other. Anyway, it, it, it will all not be relevant soon, but you know, Alcaraz is probably going to be at Indian Wells or Miami and Djokovic won't be. So he might pick up two titles there and then we're going to have this big like, and then we've got the clay and then the grass. And then we might have this big kind of meeting of the minds in Cincinnati or something or in, in wherever the Rogers Cup is this year. I can't keep track of which which way around this. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it leaves some some intrigue, George. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, let's move on to the WTA because it's been quite a cool week uh, in the south of France, in Lyon. Uh, Alicia Parks won her first WTA title. She beat Caroline Garcia in the final. Um, she moves up to number 51 in the world having previously been a career-high 70, even if she'd lost the final. Um, it's a real breakthrough for this uh, American who I know a lot of people have been talking about a lot. Um, Abigail, I, I'm sure she's someone you've had your eye on because, well, I've seen her play once or twice and she's a great player to watch and a, quite a fun player as well. Um, how big a moment is this for her? Yeah, massive moment. I've been really impressed with Alicia. I actually saw her at one of the ITF events in the UK a middle of last year during grass season it was actually it was Surbiton and uh, she was playing doubles with a friend of mine I also saw her on the singles court and she was not close to her breakthrough yet but her serve stood out a mile an absolute mile it was poles apart from everyone else that was there and I at that point in time I wondered is that going to hold up on the WTA? Is it going to look that stand out at a slightly higher level? Or is, is it stand out because she's playing on a grass court right now as well, which is a, a much faster surface? Um, and it turned out that it really it really was the big deal, the serve. And uh, look, she's come through so quickly. She broke the top 100 for the first time in December. And uh, brilliant win to get it over Carolyn Garcia in Lyon, a top seeder. And Garcia, by the way, was my pick to win the Australian Open. She's followed on really well from, from WTA finals. And for me, she's been one of my favorite WTA players to watch in recent months. Uh, she takes the ball up the line so confidently. She's got that great four-court play courtesy of all the doubles that she's been playing. Uh, but Parks, you know, I've never seen... I, well, no, I'm going to say it's hard for me to remember a women's tennis match in recent times that has been as serve dominated as that Garcia Parks match at the weekend. I, I mean, th there was one break point and no breaks of serve in the entire first set. So I, d I don't think Garcia necessarily played a bad match there, even though she's just lost to a player ranked however many spots lower. Uh, and even though she would have been expected to win that match walking into it, Parks is just riding a wave of momentum at the moment. And when the big moments, when the tight moments, because of the confidence that she has on that serve and the way she's able to set up the forehand behind it. I love how vocal she's been about her ambitions. Uh, she said at the beginning of this year, I want to be top 10 by the end of the year. And as I just said, she broke top 100 for the first time in December. So that that's a massive statement to make. And I think that underlines the kind of confidence that we see from her when she's able to go for second serves, when she's able to rip the forehands the way she does. She's got a game that's founded on confidence. And I, I think the fact that she is willing to put that out there says a lot about how she is going to respond in the biggest moments and in the biggest matches like she's ready to take it on I do have concerns for her in that the backhand is 
so well, well let's let's put this in a positive way the forehand is miles miles better than the backhand by by a long way and she's been able to cover for the backhand because that serve is so potent and because she's able to get so many forehands and because i mean garcia in that final in leon won a lot of comprehensive service games serving into that park's backhand but ultimately it didn't matter because parks had the big shots for the big moments in the tie break so all of that work that garcia did breaking down the backhand was undone but i think the more that parks is around the more people are going to work out how to get into that two-handed backhand and draw the error so she's got to capitalize on this wave of form that she's got going because she's in i'm not going to call it an emma radicano situation but there are similarities in that she's very fresh to that top wta scene people have not had time to analyze her game to kind of work out her spots on serve where she's going to go to in the big moments and to work out how to get around the forehand because the pace that she's able to generate is breathtaking i think the longer that she's around the more people are going to work out her tendencies and the more players Players are going to be able to find the way to elements of her game that are more of a vulnerability. So for me, awesome. She's on the brink of the top 50. She's got to ride this wave because I think the moment she comes off it, people are going to find ways to kind of tread her down. So it looks great for now. I would be very interested to see where she's at in three or four months' time. Not really, not really sure how to follow that gloriously detailed analysis. It was very um, it, yeah, we're not yeah. used to that kind of actual preparation on this show, Abigail. It's very much seat of the pants stuff. She, she just fascinates me. I don't know. <laughs> the, the aspects I did want to kind of draw out as well that I kind of noticed watching her um, this weekend in the final. I, I was a, really impressed with the length of the ball, particularly on the forehand, as you said, Abigail. There's a real depth to how she's hitting as well. You know, you get a lot of kind of heavy hitters in in the women's game but sometimes that accuracy is not quite there and it really is on that forehand it's a it's a pile driver of a shot it's really good and i was really impressed by her net play as well when she did come in i think that's something that can again be really missing in a lot of kind of the top top women's game um you know some players whether it be just not as comfortable coming forward or they've got used to those kind of like back-to-back rallies from the baseline um but she seemed like someone who actually can come in behind it and that's a big weapon when you've got a forehand like that knowing when to come in behind that and having the hand skills to do it and the confidence so i i think there's a lot to be really excited about with her and as you say the serves great but it felt like there was quite a good all-court game coming with it as well so there'll be improvements and i think you said she wanted to crack the top 10 she is top 10 american now which i think goes to speak to their depth as well at the minute pretty crazy well, i mean actually that is a 51. serious achievement <laughs> like given how much depth <laughs> they have you're right george that is that is significant um it, it's interesting as well because she is 51st in the world with zero grand slam points like she has never won a main draw match at a grand slam she i mean she lost in the first round of qualifying at three out of four last year she lost in the second round of qualifying albeit she lost to um, Sarah Balik, who's one of the, you know, 1,800 Czech teenagers coming through women's tennis at the moment, who is very talented as well. Um, but she's, I think it's interesting to liken her to Emma Raducanu because, yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like no one's really seen enough of her to know exactly what to do with her. Um, I think my concern is, you know, she won those two one two fives at the end of last year. She's obviously won this all indoors which is going to suit her game style quite significantly. 
Um, we're now True. obviously she's going to go and play a lot of well she'll play the sun the sunshine swing and then on the hard courts we'll see how that goes and then she's going to go on to the clay which won't suit her at all I, i'm not sure her record on that surface but i can't imagine it's it's tremendous i think there's they're all really good points and it's going to be very interesting to see her under a different microscope there i think on the other side, what she's actually got going for her there, as alluded to, is lack of pressure. She's essentially got very little to defend and everything to gain over the next few months. And uh, some of her weapons, you know, she she's not the most cutter player for a clay court, but a lot of those weapons are transferable. I mentioned the, the weakness of the backhand in comparison to the forehand, but what she needs on that backhand is time to set up for it. She'll get that on a clay court. Yes, she'll have to play more backhands and more shots in general, which is not ideal for her, uh, but there are different... I guess, ways of looking at it. Uh, she's made no secret of the way she's looked up to Serena Williams. Serena really warmed up to a clay court in the, the latter stages of her career, appreciated a little bit more time that she had on the surface and uh, was able to still utilize the serve as well. So I, I'm, I'm not calling Parks to make big moves on the clay this season. I'm not sure that she will. I don't think that she will. But I think that there's enough of an open canvas for her across the rest of the year to think that you know what, I don't think top 10 is such an outrageous shout for her at all. I, I think she can walk the walk as well as talk the talk, I think. Yeah. I mean, and just kind of a broader point on her, her record recently, I mean, if you go back, back through the year, apart from the last two months, it, it wasn't anything to really write, write home about. So, you know, the fact she didn't have that many wins on clay from where she was eight months ago compared to now feels like a kind of different player given that kind of wave of confidence she's riding so have to wait and see but yeah another exciting young talent youngish she's do we count her as young 22 that's young isn't it well it's I not really young on the wta is getting it old mm, yeah i'm not convinced um yeah. i mean also no, it's a good point good point i don't she, know uh, she, i she, i still and 22 is young. I think when you hit 23, I think when you hit 23, then you're kind of getting towards the older. I, I think 22 and under, you can call that young. Right, because okay. if you think college as well, so many more players are going the college route and then mm. they come out around that time. Uh, so I think that that kind of helps us to refer to 22 and below as slightly younger. George, you better have a really... I was going to say, as men in our 30s, we, we consider anything in the 20s very young, don't we, James? I, I think 31 and even 32, which I am soon to be extremely young. Uh, when we come back, we'll perform a quick substitution. Calvin Beton will be live from Texas. Abigail's going to go and do much more with her life than talk to us about tennis. Uh, and we will talk about Nick Kyrgios, Alexander Zverev, Dan Evans and the Davis Cup. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk, the tennis writer, George Beltrell, and in for Abigail Johnson, we've got our resident, I say resident, he's not in the UK, but given that this is, I'll tell you what, this is a first, this is a three-continent podcast now, because we've got me out in Australia, George back in the UK, and Calvin Bet on live and exclusive from Texas. Uh, Calvin, how are you getting on? Yeah, all good, all good. Um, I haven't seen much of the place because the, uh, the tennis is right next to the hotel. So other than the drive from the airport, um, basically just past the most dangerous. You basically have to walk across a motorway to get there, though. So, oh, fun. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, it's only about 50 metres, but it can take about three quarters of an hour to get there if, you, if there's no cars. <laughs> Excellent. The car. uh, now, from reports I've received, there's been multiple instances of racket-related shenanigans uh, in team cash and pattern. Would you would you like to expand on any of them? Yeah, well, Henry couldn't Henry uh, couldn't land. He couldn't take his initial flight because of uh, he was flying from Denver, where his girlfriend lives. Um, he couldn't take his initial flight because of the extreme weather in Dallas on that day. Um, there was fro- fro- freezing rain on that day, apparently. Cool. Um, and then we got there the day after that, and Julian's rackets got lost on the flight. Um, they got put on as a later flight, so they did arrive later the de- later that day, but um, late on at night, about nine o'clock at night, they landed. So, oh, panicky! Um, and and you, have you got a racket, Calvin? Uh, well, that's the story. <laughs> um, uh, I I've got some new rackets coming because. Uh, yesterday in practice, or the day before yesterday in practice, um, I might have got hit in the the private parts uh, with a ball, and in a fit of anger, I smashed my racket. Um, <laughs> now, is, so, do uh, coaches get code violations? Is there some sort of fine? Did did you have to do press ups for the team? Not as far as I know, no. But um, <laughs> uh, the, the, although I think actually smashing my racket into the practice court probably improved the practice court. Because it's one of the worst <laughs> ones I've ever seen. Um, 
Excellent. The joys so, yeah. of two fifties, eh? Um, great. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you're uh, intact, even if your racket frames aren't, and I'm glad that Yonix are so good to look after you while you're Indeed, out yeah. there. Um, right. Let's let's move on, shall we? Uh, I think we should start with the questions. We've had quite a full mailbag this week, so I've got a couple of good questions uh, from Toby Hall on Twitter and from Prabesh in Nepal on email. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can. As always, uh, we're on Twitter at Unfiltered Tennis, or you can email us, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, tennisunfilteredpod. You can follow us on many different social media, and I try and check all of them as often as possible. So if you've got a question for the pod, you've really no excuse not to ask it. And that's what Toby Hall has done. He uh, tweeted us to say, do you think Sabalenka and Rybakina can challenge Svantec for number one, or is their heavy hitting too court dependent <clears throat> and not repl- replicable across the calendar? Uh, George, what do you reckon? Can Rybakina and Sabalenka challenge for number one? I'd back Sabalenka a lot more than uh, Rybakina. I mean, I, I'd still be surprised, I guess, but given Sabalenka has been very, very, very consistent outside of the slams if she starts adding big deep slam runs and wins then she's going to be pretty close because she's basically been going without that for a fair while bar the odd kind of semi-final so um Rybakina you know we've not really seen the the consistency yet um and I, I you know I've alluded to it a little bit the last few weeks there's still a couple of question marks about Where's Fiontech's at the minute? You know, is she going to be the dominant force we saw last season? Has will she be able to maintain that consistency, or are people going to fancy her? You know, that invincibility as soon as you pierce it can be tough to get back. So, yeah, it'll be be certainly more interesting than it was last season. I think the race for number one, but I think I'd be sticking my eggs in the Fiontech basket still at the moment. Calvin, uh, Fiontech, I think is guaranteed number one now until the middle of April at least. Um, but after that, can you see either of those two women putting together some consistent tennis to challenge her? Um, I think in terms of how the rankings work, and because she's got so much to defend, it's possible that one of them, as George says, probably more likely Sabalenka, but one of them could challenge getting to number one in the rankings. I still think we'll see that Svantec remains the best player in the world overall in terms of consistency. But it wouldn't surprise me if either of those players get the get get wins against her, and the ranking may swap around that time. Well, it, it could be around any time from April until, I guess now really, because she's just got so much to defend. Um, mm. She can't really extend her lead because she won pretty much everything other than Wimbledon, didn't she? Mm. Um, for the yeah, we the we year. are now getting she... to the point where she this this is where her winning run started last year. So. Every match yeah. she loses in the next three months is going to cost her points. And, you know, she's at 10,400 at the moment, and it's almost impossible for her to make that total go up. So, yeah, it's, it's a good point. Um, let's move on because Prabesh from Nepal sent us an email, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com, uh, with a question that we've kind of skirted around quite a lot, and I know people get really excited about, and me as a one hander aficionado, particularly. Uh, Pravesh writes, is one-handed backhand going to die in the next 10 to 20 years? Sitsipas is the highest-ranked one-hander on both tours. 
Um, Jabour is the only one I can think of in the women's tour and both at limited. I, I don't think Jabour has a one-handed backhand. She once hit one at Wimbledon and she hits a lot of slices, but I don't think we would technically call her a one-handed backhand. But anyway, move on. Um, players like Shapovlov, Mazzetti all seem inconsistent. Is it because they don't know how to perfect a one-hander and are just bad in general, or is it just because it's a huge liability as a shot? If it's the latter, should coaches at junior level stop teaching it completely? Why handicap someone? And do you think, guys, there is any way to evolve one-hander so they can be brought back into fashion? Um, on the female side, I can't even name one noteworthy player that is a proper one-hander. Long question, but cheers, guys. Love the show. Um, well, just to name the women who do hit one-handers, uh, there are five in the top 200. Tatiana Maria, who actually switched from a two-hander mid-career. Uh, Victoria Golubich, Diane Perry... Uh, the amazing Fernanda Contreras Gomez, who's a, a fabulous just woman and takes notes and reads notes on court and stuff, and I love that. Uh, and Jessica Ponche uh, from France. Uh, Calvin, you're you're the technical expert here, so maybe there's a uh, there's some stuff to look at here. Is the one-hander intrinsically bad? Should to should coaches do coaches still teach it at junior level? You still get the odd one who you see hitting it. Um... It's not something I'd particularly do unless you've got somebody who has a real feel for it. But even then, it's it's so difficult with the way that the game's going in terms of power to be able to... One, you're giving away, you can't hit the ball as hard with a one-hander, obviously. And two, you're, you can't withstand as much power with only one hand on it in defence, which makes it difficult. Um, I can't think of a a junior player or a young player that's coming through that has a real great one-hander. We get this thing like, actually, I was watching Shapovalov today because he's playing in Dallas, and I said to one of the lads, Shapovalov's backhand is up there as, as up there towards the top of the charts of shots that look great but aren't very good. Mm. Um, and that's what you tend to get with one-handers. You know, they do look lovely. They look like we think tennis shots should look and exemplify by Federer's who's had a lovely shot. But to be honest, in terms of like shots, it's even in the last 15 years, one handers that you would say are great shots, not great one handers, but great shots. You'd probably say Gasquet's backhand and Stan Wawrinka's backhand. Although Stan Wawrinka's forehand was actually way better than his backhand. Mm. Um, I don't think they'll, I don't think we'll see them fade. I don't think we'll see them completely disappear. But I'd be surprised if we start if we get more than ten percent of them in the top one hundred in the men's and like you say, five percent in the women's. I think the um the name I was thinking about uh, when seeing this question, you'll be you'll both be shocked to hear, uh, was Dominic Team. Um and it <laughs> but it, but in all seriousness, I mean I, I did think Team's backhand was very, very good, but what actually was as big a part of how it became good was how good his movement was to get out there and, and bend it and particularly on the clay like it was a good shot because of everything the whole package that he has whereas like a sister pass I, I, I don't think he necessarily has the whole package quite quite that way but even you know Vavrinka's backhand was amazing when he connected with it but you still felt in some matches that he could just get kind of pushed down quite easily as well i mean you know it, it is definitely a tough shot but i think teams teams backhand was pretty pretty good as well and i'd have that as kind of quite high 
I'd agree. I'd agree. What I would say, though, about Team and Vavrinka is where they're quite unique as they were both huge physical guys, upper body, like massive upper body strength. They were probably, I'd say, maybe along with Nadal, like the biggest in terms of like powerfully big. I don't mean in terms of height or weight, but the the bulkier guys on tour were uh, Stan Wawrinka and Dominic Team. you would say, wouldn't you, for that period, which helps being able to hit one-hander. The other thing that sort of occurred to me in this conversation as well is how... Uh, I know Gasquet had to have results as well, but he almost feels like a slightly different generation, but Federer feels potentially like the last sort of successful... or oh, sorry, most successful, most suited um, one-handed player to play on the grass. I mean, the rest of them have been pretty pretty poor on the grass um, and don't seem that well suited to it as a shot. The Mitros all right on the grass. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm considering him as part of Federer. That's maybe, yeah, maybe a bit harsh. But like Vavrinka, team, Sissipas, you would never really kind of have them down to win Wimbledon. But I still think it's a very effective shot on the clay by comparison. Um, I think the slightly kind of higher bounce allows you a bit more time to kind of come up over it. And that is where it is more of an effective shot. So it's kind of no surprise to me that those three are more successful there than, than the grass where... The slice one-handed back in that Federer was so good at doesn't really feel like it's made the transition to a lot of other one-handed backhanders. I was just going to say that actually, George. I think it's not necessarily that their that their backhands don't hold up. Um, their what their drive backhands don't hold up. It's that neither of them have particularly great slices. Not that they're bad slices, but but Team and Wawrinka, their, their slices aren't in the same league as uh, as you would say Federer's was, and certainly not like someone like Dan Evans. Who who mixes yeah. up probably fifty fifty, but probably goes more slice than drive. Actually, he's probably about sixty forty, if not more than that. Um, but he has quite a you know he's pretty decent on grass because he uses the slice. It's a nice slice backhand. Um, and similarly, like from the era before that, I guess Tim Hemman probably had the best slice backhand maybe of the last twenty years, um, and and that's why he was so successful on the grass. So I would say. He's, it's less that their one-handers aren't any good on the grass. It's more that they don't have the variation of the slice. Yeah. And that, again, I sort of made that point about Sissabas last week. I do slightly worry that the slice is going out of the one-handed game. And I do, in some ways, not not for everyone, but for a lot of these young players who've been watching Federer in that kind of later transition, I, I do wonder if that's going to be a bit of an interesting theme now that maybe that the people are overemphasizing the, the drive that looks good but actually losing quite a crucial part of what made Federer so good, which was that slice back end. Well, Pravesh, I hope that answers your question. I'm sorry that it's not more about how much we're going to see of the one-handed backhand over the next 10 to 20 years. I was just going through, actually, the list. Um, tennis Abstract have a really useful list of all the highest-ranked single backhands in tennis. Thank you, Jeff, as always, because Tennis Abstract is just the best website in the world. Um, I can't find anyone in the top... 500 born after the year 2000 with a one-handed backhand um there are a couple of 99s and 98 uh matteo martineau uh from france uh gian marco moroni uh from italy and another italian giovanni fonio all of whom claim to have one-handed backhands but no one who is uh fighting their way up and they're all sort of between 300 and 400 to be honest so no one coming through, I'm afraid, George? 
Just as a, a short defence, because it feels like we've been a bit negative. I mean, we have just had a one-handed backender in the Australian Open final, so it, it certainly yeah. doesn't initially limit you to what, you know, the sky being the limit. Teams mm. won one recently. Vavrinka's won one in the not-too-distant pass, and Dimitrov and Gasquet were both brilliant players as well. So, mm. you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have such a downer that it's over, even though I kind of accept that... Um, the two the end is probably nine. more favourable. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, there's so much variety of backhands going around at the moment. Like, when you actually think about the kind of, the top, I don't know. I, or just looking at the quarterfinals, for example, in Australia Open, I feel like there's lots of different types of backhands. Anyway, we could talk about forehands and backhands, but in the words of Billie Jean King, forehands and backhands, people don't want to read about that. I assume people don't want to listen about it as well. We've talked lots about backhands. Um <laughs> And we've got to move on to some quite serious stuff that's been going on over the last um, what week, I suppose. Um, Nick Kyrgios entered a guilty plea to the charge of common assault in an Australian court. Uh, the uh, he, It was said and he admitted that he pushed his then-girlfriend, Kira Pasari, onto the pavement during an argument, but was spared a criminal record or a sentence, which I'm told in Australia is not an uncommon reaction to a minor offence. Um, for someone with a clean record. Magistrate Beth Kelly, who was presiding over the case, uh, called the incident, quote, a single act of stupidity or frustration. She also stated that he was, quote, a young man trying to extricate himself from a heightened emotional situation. She said, you acted in the heat of the moment. I'm dealing with you in the same way I would deal with any young man in this court. You're a young man who happens to hit a tennis ball particularly well. Um, it should also be noted that Kyrgios' lawyers sought to have the charge dismissed on mental health grounds uh, and that a psychologist uh, gave evidence both written and by phone in court that he was in not a mental health crisis but in, in, a, in a poor way in terms of mental health at the time. Um, the magistrate, though, rejected the submission that the charge should be dismissed on mental health grounds. Uh, Kyrgios' statement afterwards said, I respect today's ruling and I'm grateful to the court for dismissing the charges without conviction. I was not in a good place when this took place. I reacted to a difficult situation in a way I deeply regret. I know it wasn't okay. I'm sincerely sorry for the hurt I caused. Mental health is tough. Life can seem overwhelming. But I found that getting help and working on myself has helped me to feel better and to be better. George, the Australian courts have found that Kyrgios guilty because he pled guilty. But as I said, as happens in Australia um, with what is considered minor offences and common assault is the sort of most minor of assault charges, uh, there is no criminal record and no sentence. Should the ATP tour now conduct their own investigation and dish out their own um, punishment? I think... I think they probably sh should, um, as much as anything, to because there's been a lot of pretty poor water going under the bridge the last few years that they've claimed they can't do anything about until they see a, a bit of legal evidence going in one direction. I think it sends out a pretty poor message if you then don't stand by that, even though I think the severity of this, while I'm not condoning it, isn't in the same league as what Zverev and Vasilashvili, for example, have been facing in terms of um, allegations, I would say. Um, but that's not to excuse it and not to say it, it was serious enough to go to court and serious enough to bring the game into disrepute. And, you know, frankly, as, you know, <laughs> men sat here, you know, there are things 
it's not being dealt with well at any level of the court system across the world you know this sort of kind of male on uh, woman violence and domestic violence as a whole so i think there's yeah i think it would be great if the atp did take a stand to be honest and put um a ban in and certainly a fine um and make a bit of a statement on it because you know frankly a lot of other sports that have been dealing with this haven't haven't really managed to do that and i think the message would be quite good if nothing mm. else um it's not the only uh domestic abuse case that has resolved this week in tennis you alluded to alexander zverev there george everyone and if they're not then they should go and read them they, they are there to be read as long as you're not in germany um, the allegations made by Olya Sharipova regarding Alexander Zverev. Uh, she claimed that he assaulted her at multiple tennis events, um, some quite harrowing stories. The investigation by the ATP that was given to investigators called the Lake Forest Group, who are an independent uh, group, uh, they, that investigation has concluded with no further action necessary. Um, it was an exhaustive process, quote, uh, reliable, a lack of reliable evidence and eyewitness reports, in addition to conflicting statements by Sharipova, Zverev and other interviewees, the investigation was unable to substantiate the allegations of abuse or determine that the violations of ATP's on-site offences or player major offences rules took place. Um, Calvin, this is... I think this is much more difficult because we've had what was you know, submitted into the public domain by Sharipova through those two interviews um, that Ben Rothenberg conducted. We are led to believe it's been a rigorous process and, and there has been obviously a couple of legal cases, one in Germany and one in Russia, which Zverev alluded to in his statement, um, which in the interest of fairness I should actually read, I realise. Um, he says, from the beginning, I have maintained my innocence and denied the basis allegations against me. I welcome and fully cooperated with the ATP's investigation. I'm grateful for the organization's time and attention in this matter. The decision marks a third neutral, sorry, excuse me, a third neutral third party arbiter who has reviewed all relevant information and made a clear informed decision on this matter in my favor. In addition to the ATP's independent investigation, I've also initiated court proceedings in Germany and Russia, both of which I have won. I'm grateful that this is finally resolved. My priority is now recovering from injury and concentrating on what I love the most in this world, tennis. I want to thank my friends, family and fans for their ongoing support. We've followed the long and difficult process and justice has prevailed. Um, there's been no comment from Olya Sharapova on the ruling as yet. Calvin, this is clearly very difficult, but it it seems to me startling that it's taken the ATP this long to come to this conclusion when the criminal case regarding Nick Kyrgios has taken less time and you would think would be more bureaucratic and more exhausting. Surely this should have been done with a much greater sense of urgency in order to kind of quash any allegations, if indeed they were false, which the investigation claims they were. Yeah, um, it's not been a great week for sport, has it, with this type of thing? With um, <laughs> uh, There isn't enough evidence, being the pertinent phrase, across tennis and football. Uh, mm. And it shows that we're not really moving forward as a society on that. Um, yeah, I mean, the ATP have just, they've, they've made a mess of this one, I think. And then it felt from the start they were trying to find a way of getting this end result and mm. what would be the, the quickest way of doing it. Um, how could, we knew this from the start, you know, this is the same thing that we always come across with these, these kind of crimes is that how can you have eyewitness evidence? Like, mm. what's the likelihood of ever having that? And if that's the mm. case, then. 
there'll be zero convictions, well, not zero, there'll be very, very, very few convictions ever mm. for sexual assault if the bottom line of it is you need eyewitness uh, wit- eyewitnesses, Evidence. basically. Yeah. So I, I don't get like what they didn't have that at the start. So why why drag it on for for this long? They knew that, mm. but at some stage you're going to have to start believing the victims. You're going to have to start believing the women, rather than just going, "Oh, there's no evidence." Mm. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting. I read something a column in the Independent by Katie Edwards that the headline was Nick Kyrgios's apology isn't worth a thing. Uh, subject at least Kyrgios is feeling better. Has anyone asked Kiara Pasari how she's doing? thought not um it's true that the rigmaroles of the process inevitably mean that the the focus is very much on the accused and and rightly to an extent not on the accuser but there is an element to which you know curious turn up to court in crutches and like you know the mental health submission which was trying to get the charge dismissed which i you know was was rejected the lawyers are doing whatever they can that you know this is kind of the very foundation of the legal justice system to to give their client the best the best go that they can but i think it's it's important to look at that curious case for example and say i think this sends a bit of a message that if it's a one off thing and you lose control in the heat of the moment it you can sort of it's okay and I, I'm not comfortable with that. And that, that's kind of what this column echoes as well. And like I said, Nick Kyrgios has been convicted of a low end of assault. But not to put any sanction on that, I think is quite troubling. Also, um, I mean, this is where... This is what concerns me about when, when people start talking about mental health. And, and, and I, I'm not dismissing mental health at all. There are people who who do suffer from it badly, but it feels now like it's becoming a way, almost a way out for certain things. The stuff what he said about I wasn't in a good place. Who's ever in a good place when they do that? Mm. We could just write that. Who who's ever in a good place when they start pushing their girlfriend over? Mm. It, it just, you, you never are, and and it just feels like right. You know that it, I do feel like as a society we're getting to a place now where the first port of call is. Right, let's let's go mental health, mm. and and there seems that there is a lot of sympathy with that, and, and and that I think is dismissive of people who genuinely do have mental health issues. Mm. Nick, I've said before, I've said before, Nick Kyrgios pulls the mental health one out regularly. Not mm. enjoying playing tennis is not suffering from mental illness. Mm. That's not the same thing. Yeah, and and it is relevant that the judge dismissed that application that that the charge should be thrown out on those those grounds, um, despite the evidence of a of a psychiatrist and and everything that was placed into evidence. So, I think to that extent the the mental health defence didn't stand up, and I think that's important as well. And and that is not to say that Nick Kyrgios hasn't had serious mental health issues in the past, and that's not to say that he doesn't now, albeit that everything that has been said during the course of this trial is that he's doing much better and that his mental health is in a much better place. And as you say, Calvin, I think it's a really good point. Who is in a good place when you do those things? It doesn't excuse it. Like, even if you're, you know, completely out of your mind and, and on a psychotic break, 
That doesn't mean that if you commit a crime, it is excused. It might mitigate the sentence, but it doesn't mean that it's an okay thing to do. You you might end up in a, you know, in a secure facility rather than than jail. You might end up in a a hospital rather than a prison, but you would still receive some kind of sanction over that. And and that's where I find the discomfort that, you know, someone has been found guilty of a crime against a woman who trusted him and hasn't got anything sanctioned against him. I, I'm, I'm struggling with that, to be honest, George. Yeah, I think so. And, I, and again, this is where, you know, it would be good for, for the ATV really to make that statement, at least, you know, I, I think we, we touched upon this before, that legal processes are, are not doing very well on this front of the in anywhere in the world for a multitude of reasons but the atp really for me has to has to act from that perspective in the sense that he's absolutely brought the sport into disrepute if they want to find a open quotation marks legal basis for it there's no question about that that being found guilty of this sort of thing should do that and it it's just a it just you need to someone needs to start actually punishing people and putting you know some some markers down in this field it's just not not really good enough and you know you're absolutely right to flag that sort of column james as well because yeah it, it, this sort of thing is totally played in the field of curios and we're all kind of talking about him but you know it, it's a, it must be an absolutely horrible thing actually really thinking further about it to you know someone you love and trust who's physically much stronger than you you know even if it's not the world's most terrifying physical crime actually that that mental psychological fear of, mm. of that kind of relationship that it instills must must be a really damaging and horrible thing that you know she will have taken her a while to get over and if she, if she's over it at all so you know i think the consequences should certainly extend to him for a period of time um and and i wanted to bring a column in as well because i think it's important to have a female voice on this. I appreciate we're a podcast of predominantly three men and I wanted to talk with Abigail about that as well, but you know she's a tennis commentator and watched a lot of tennis and I wanted to get her expertise in the limited time we had um, on that as well and I, I think probably she would echo quite a lot of what was being said. Um, I think it's particularly important to note that it's really important for tennis's diversity that it takes seriously things like this. It needs to send a message to the world that says we're not a sport that allows people who commit crimes against women to to come back and like i said that doesn't legally apply to alexander zverev it it does apply in a, in a small way to nicholas kyrgios but it's the same across all sport you you need to send a message that says we are not a group of people who tolerates this kind of thing i i think the thing what's really disappointed me over the last week both with kyrgios and zverev and the other thing that we were alluding to is mason greenwood is the number of people I've seen on social media defending those people entirely on the basis that they, they're their favourite sports people mm. for nothing else. And it's not based on anything else other than, well, you know, we, we they haven't done it, We've support the, we, we need to support them now, and we told you so, and this kind of thing. And I just find that staggering from actual human beings, that mm. we can be so brazen and wrong in that way. Mm. And partisan, yeah, and quite quite obviously yeah. partisan, yeah. And not so relevant to the Kyrgios case, but you know, 
quite often people take a not guilty version verdict or whatever is a total defiance of innocence where it just simply means there wasn't enough evidence sometimes and mm. that feels yeah, true used, in a lot they, of these cases i don't know if they still have it but they used to have a verdict in scotland called not proven so a jury mm. could return three different verdicts guilty not guilty and not proven and i always thought it was such a waste of i mean it was sort of great from a journalistic perspective because you could report it and say it would give you a bit more freedom when reporting but it's like, well, we think you did it, but we can't prove it. It's like, I don't know who that verdict really helps at all. But anyway, um, Scottish law is a very complicated thing and, and not, I think, less efficient than English law. But anyway, this is not the law unfiltered <laughs> podcast because that's virtually impossible to do. Let's move on. Um, we don't like talking about this stuff, but it's important to talk about it. Uh, and, it see, and it always happens when we talk about this really big stuff and then we have to like you know, joke about Dan Evans getting to play doubles in the Davis Cup, and it feels completely churlish, but at some point you have to make the step, and I assure you it's not for wanting to denigrate what we've been talking about. But Dan Evans finally got a game of Davis Cup doubles, and he won, goddammit, against Farrar and Cabal in Colombia. I mean, which is, in Colombia in February on clay is the ultimate, like, wet Wednesday night in Stoke of Davis Cup tennis. Uh, it was a massively important match. Uh, Evans and Skupski won in straight sets. Evans had actually lost in a really dramatic singles match. Uh, Cam Norrie then made it 1-0. The doubles match made it 2-1 and Norrie sealed it for a 3-1 victory. Um, George, I mean, <laughs> to say what you like about Evo, he's put his money where his mouth is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and to be fair to Dan, I mean, a lot. it's not like he's not gone out and proven it on the doubles tour before i think sometimes the the debate has been a little bit like oh well we've got you know world number one doubles player why would a chippy singles player be getting involved but him and skupski have proven themselves to be a good pair together um and had better doubles results than the murray's really had over the last year or so so he's got that case with him on form um and he, look he's gonna he's gonna cause leon a bit of a a problem actually because it really would have worked in some ways in smith's favor not that i'd say he wants him to lose but in terms of kind of nipping this thing in the bud had evans gone there and just lost quite comfortably that 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 you know now it's gonna be a really pretty tough choice because you know salisbury spoke about kind of having his back problems at the minute but is still right up there with the world's best doubles players skupski's playing really well and skupski seems to play best with evans um, and there's maybe a few question marks over the Salisbury Murray partnership. So, yeah, selection headache, but I suppose a nice, nice problem to have, as they say in yeah. sports cliches. In rowing, they call it a seat race, where you just have the same crew and then you swap people in and out. And I think we should have Murray versus Souls, Murray and Salisbury versus Evans and Skupski in like a televised practice match two days before the Davis Cup finals. Like, full crowd, aggro, the whole thing. I think that'd be great. And Evo would love it, I'm sure. Uh, Calvin, you obviously know Dan pretty well, and uh, you know how competitive he is and how much it will mean to him that he, uh, he's he he's gone and won that. And also to win a tie away from home. I mean, what, what an endorsement of the home and away format. Yeah, I mean, look. Dan's an excellent doubles player. He's under-ranked at what his ranking is, and he's, he's, he's certainly warrants his place in the in he's, he's, he should have played already it's amazing that he hadn't played a doubles match i will say i'm a bit it's a bit disconcerted i've seen everybody going on about dan evans won his doubles match and it's it's all i heard <laughs> it's all i've heard since then 
the guy he played with is not bad. You know, he's yeah. got one next to his name <laughs> on on the world doubles rankings. You know that that's that's not a bad one. Um, you know, let let let's let's talk about that as well. Mm. Um, and you know, it, it's I think that is important. Uh, yeah, it, it was a good win. I, I will say, I think um, Farrer and Cabal are not not what they were. They're certainly on the trajectory down. Um, and I think one, I don't know which one it is, is, is very underpowered now. Um, but in those conditions, yeah, it was a good, uh, really good win, really strong win. Um, it's strange if you said that the match, if you said that Britain had won three one, you would think it was that they'd um, they'd probably lost the doubles and won all the singles, wouldn't you? But um, it wasn't ever actually lost one of the singles. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, it looked at doubles. I, I didn't see loads of it. Um, I saw snippets of the doubles. It looked like it was a great atmosphere, yeah. Um, again, I, I do love the, the home and away ties. It's my preference. The problem is, if you look at Davis Cup, I was, I was just thinking about this this morning. Right since I've watched, been watching tennis, been a tennis fan, which I guess, or knowing enough about tennis, which is, I guess, from the, the early mid-90s, I can't think of any times where actually the two best countries have played each other in the Davis Cup final. I just you you've had we've had great Davis Cup finals, but not where you would say right they're the two best countries, and that's because with the home and away ties and that kind of thing, players just don't want to turn out in them a lot of the times, mm. and it just and and, and get, what will normally happen with will be a team can get their best team out once um, or through or one year. And that's it. You know, I think Djokovic won it with Serbia one year because they got everyone out. Nadal's won it a few times. Has Federer won it? Federer and Wawrinka win it? They won Davis Cup? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there's a nod. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Britain have obviously won it. So, you know, Murray's got his one in there. But, you know, but you look at that, like Murray beat Belgium. Um, Britain beat Belgium in the final when they won it. Like Belgium were far from the best, second best country ever. <laughs> and I think what, but again, it is great. It's a great uh, event. Um, I wonder whether the, the the format that they did the other day was maybe the route back for that, where it's two days, two days best of three. I think that that fitted better with the doubles in the middle, better mm. than that nonsense at the ATP Cup where the doubles were still last, which meant you you basically hardly ever going to get a live um, live doubles rubber. But I thought that worked really well. The, the two two matches on the Friday. One match, uh, one doubles, and then two singles on the on the Saturday. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned us not really giving Skupski the kind of shout out there, Calvin. But he, you know, there was a bit of a period, wasn't there, when he he kind of went with Jamie Murray straight after kind of Bruno, and they were hoping that was going to be a, a partnership that worked out. It didn't quite quite pan out the way it did. It, it it kind of felt at the time a little bit, and I'm not sure this is actually true in, in terms of what people thought, but it felt a little bit like, you know. It, Scupsy had stepped up and maybe not quite, not quite made it in the inverted commas with someone you know has been as successful as Jamie Murray and felt like he was kind of binned off a bit in some ways and you know he's he's really really gone from from strength to strength since that and I think you know testament to his character because you know that he played with his brother of course for a long time and made that step up didn't quite happen and now he's you know absolutely flying out there and great endorsement for for louis and co back in britain hq as well yeah and i think it's also worth remembering that and i haven't got the stats in front of me but neil is still a bit of a davis cup rookie like he he hasn't played many davis cup matches um 
I, I, th- I think you probably count it on one hand, the number of actual Davis Cup matches he's played, um, which, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's 33 and he's been around the block plenty of times. But I think Davis Cup, especially for the doubles guys who even more so than singles guys don't play in front of big crowds very often, it's a whole and, and it's a different type of crowd anyway. It's a whole different level of pressure um, to go out, and you know, Evo talks about it a lot. How how pressurized it is, and how great it is to represent your country. But not everyone thrives under that that kind of environment, and it takes some getting used to. We've seen it with Joe. I don't think Joe's played his best tennis in Davis Cup by any stretch, um, and it has taken time for people to adjust. So. A massive result for him. I really enjoyed watching the video when they were celebrating after match point in the Nori match and everyone, like all the players, all the physios, all the coaches were on the court sort of jumping around in a circle. And just before the video cuts off, I just hear someone say, we're getting on it, Jack. Um, and I then on Inst- on Dejan Voinovich's Instagram this morning, who's Jack's fitness trainer, saw a picture of all the players in a bar in Bogota. And I, I don't want to cast any aspersions on Jack Draper's character, and he more than deserves a beer, I'm sure. But uh, everyone looked like they'd had a really good night, put it that way. I'll, I'll try and find the photo. It made me laugh. Um Let's move on. We, we, we're we already going long, but I think we're going to go long just because that's what happens when we get other people on the podcast. Because I want to talk about Australian Open TV ratings, uh, which caused quite a fuss on, on Twitter this week. Uh, the men's final in the US pulled the lowest numbers for at least a decade, uh, according to the Sports Business Journal. Um, the domestic Australian numbers were a significant dip on last year as well, albeit... That there was some expectation of that because of the strong Australian interest in the back end of the uh, second week last year. But the men's final, nevertheless, didn't have an Australian in it and still pulled better numbers. Um, an absence of big matches, the foregone conclusion of the final. Someone blamed me for breaking the Serjan Djokovic story and suggesting that fewer people in the US watched the match because of that. Uh, which is obviously bollocks, and actually, technically, I didn't break it anyway, but let's move on. don't want to get stuck in that too much. Um, George, what do you think? I mean, is this just... There's been lots of lowest finals for a decade over the last couple of years. Is this just another sort of canary in the mine? Uh, I'd be a little bit worried, to be honest, and I have been a little bit worried about tennis's global standing for a period i think there's been some kind of rogue business decisions in terms of tv rights that haven't really helped the situation particularly in the uk but there's just certain markets where you know us being probably the the main one that i'm alluding to here where it is it slips badly 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 down the rankings and it's losing a lot of kind of main channel visibility um which is never a great situation for any sport to be in um so yeah i'm a little bit worried and i think but it but on the other hand there is a kind of natural recycling sometimes within eras in sports and when you lose people like federer serena i know she wasn't there last year but you know still still a big name to have retired um barty obviously from the australian perspective even as much as it'll pain Calvin's ears to hear it, even losing Kyrgios, you know, who does bring in some numbers for the first few rounds. I'm not saying he's going to get in the in the final or whatever. Um, 
you know that that's not really a great tournament from an Australian perspective. Um, so yeah, not not ideal. I'm certainly not putting the nails in tennis's coffins, but I think as we've said on this podcast from many times over the last however long we've been doing this, there were a lot of quite poor business decisions happening in the tennis world and a lot of them really center around visibility of the sport and I think there's a worry that that might start coming home to roost quite badly in the not too distant future if we're not careful. Calvin I appreciate you've only been there a couple of days and and as you mentioned have barely escaped from hotel and tennis center but you're in the US and and someone was trying to tell me on Twitter that the US is not the the biggest market anymore and it doesn't matter you know there's a, sh- a shift going on to european nations like poland and i was like well well i appreciate there are a lot of people in poland there are a lot more of them in america there's still a lot of money in america and for advertisers and broadcasters america is still the golden goose do, do you have any sense of of what what tennis's image is like in america whether whether it really has much of a chance of kicking a recovery behind all these men that are breaking into the top 10? Well, actually, the um, the tournament that we're at this week, the, the main stadium seats, 2,500, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a gentleman who was talking to us the other day from the venue, and he said it was already a sellout. Um, they'd already sold all the tickets for the week. Um, he also told us that last year was a sellout and that it was also a sellout for qualities as well. Uh, and there were 2,000, well, almost sell, sell out for quality. He said there were 2,000 people in for qualifying last year. Now, it's been qualifying the last two days, and there's been about 100 people in. So uh, I don't know whether he had some sort of strange memory or what, but I, I did. Now, look, that wouldn't be un, uncommon for qualities. Um, you, you know, I think I don't think they're, they're charging people. I don't think they're charging people, but um, they're... You know, it seems a big event. There's people watching the um, the practice and that kind of thing, you know. So, But he taught... I'll be interested to see. I'm getting to this. I'll be interested to see how it pans out the next few days because this guy told me that tennis is huge in Dallas. Uh, he said it, it does it's a, it's a big following and they love it. Uh, I also spoke to a lad here who was... Well, one of the lads who was sat with me when I was talking to this guy said uh, he's lived in Dallas for five years and no one's ever spoke to him about tennis. So, um, <laughs> again... again Let's see how the week pans out. Could be anything. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, what I was told a couple of years ago on, on, the, on the visibility and the TV rights and this kind of thing is that, that tennis always does better in countries when it is on the same channel as golf because apparently the people who watch golf also like to watch tennis uh, and golf is huge. Golf, golf has a big viewership. That's and what happens is that, especially in stuff like Britain, in places like Britain where you pay for, like, a a, a platform tends to have the rights for something. Yeah. And that's where, where tennis went off when Sky Sports tends to have much of, most of the golf, I think. I've, I've gone off watching yeah. golf, so I assume it still does. And, it, and then the tennis went away from that. It hasn't had tennis. So the women's went to BT uh, and the men's went to Amazon. Uh, and I think they lost a lot of viewership in that. And the same, apparently, it's very much the case in America, that when the tennis is on the same channel as the golf, more people watch it. Um, that's really interesting. That's, they said that, and then uh, the person who told me told that that works with a lot of sports as well, that they like to pair their sports up in terms of, so if you watch one sport, you tend to watch another sport as well. Um, yeah. So, but I don't, but I think what what has happened is that 
even with that kind of knowledge and research, tennis has just gone, we don't care, we'll just go to whoever gives us the most money. Yeah, yeah the, there's a feeling of that. And ESPN have just signed up for a big new deal that this, I think, is the first year of, and they've just bombed it in terms of ratings. So that, I mean, look, it doesn't help that the final, I think, kicked off at 12.30 a.m. Um, Eastern and 3.30 a.m. Pacific or the other way around. I, I'm afraid that given that this podcast currently spans three time zones and i'm also working in two others i have no idea which way around that is but the point is it was overnight in the u.s and that makes it hard but it's always been overnight in the u.s the australian open final has started at the same time for as long as i don't know how long but as long as i can remember so when you're comparing apples with apples in that sense it it doesn't make a difference now okay the one last year went very long which helped so you pick up some like peak ratings in the morning when people are waking up, but I just I, th- I think people are too keen, specifically people who think that this is a slight against Novak Djokovic, like are too keen to defend it and say, oh no, but oh it doesn't matter, or because of this or that. It's like, well, no, like you have to accept that these numbers exist and ask questions as to why it's happening, rather than try and ask questions as to why it might be actually a bit of a mislead. Like tennis is less popular, sport is less popular, esports is more popular. There is more competition, and you need to understand that tennis has to do something. And if fans sit down and say, "Oh no, we'll just accept tennis getting a bit less popular," then where are we going to go? We're not going to move. People aren't going to move the goalposts themselves. Just uh, I mean, to slightly defend tennis in the US, I mean participation is quite on the rise there even though you'll hear a lot of people going on about pickleball that people oh, are don't. picking up rackets a lot more there but well, yeah let's not go into that we're not the pickleball quite because but i, I also want to just sign you it's one of the more humorous comments i saw about this all this week was someone saying um oh don't care about the american market look at the chinese one 40 percent more people are watching uh tennis in china right now than ever before i was like Tennis has literally banned itself from China. This is this doesn't feel like a very good uh, good strategy at the moment. If that's if that's where we're going to get the long run, so I wouldn't necessarily. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they they literally praying China's going to save you. Right. <laughs> also, also, are we just... trusting any figures that come out of China? Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Um, or on Twitter, which is where I got it from. But I was just merely. Oh no, that came that came comment. from the Tennis Australia press release. Um, I did it. <laughs> yeah, but but that equally, there's absolutely no reason to believe that their attendance figures this year were proper like Arsenal home attendance figures, which for people who don't follow football <laughs> in the UK are just total nonsense. Um, you can see that half the stadium is empty, and they'd be like, "And it's another capacity crowd." It's not. I think the the other the other thing I would say as well, you know, participation okay is doing fine. You might say. Ticket sales are also doing fine for kind of main events, but there's a big, broader problem that you'll see on the tour events and just kind of, you know, in terms of the, the funding of the tour. Like, I think individual events is a good day out. People will go if it comes to that city on the whole. Um, WCA finals last year aside. But, you know, broadly speaking, tennis events can get people going to them if you're yeah. in a good kind of city. So there's that interest in a day out. I yeah. just... And I've watched this for a long time. I don't meet many people who know what's going on in tennis outside of the Grand Slams. And I don't know many people who know much about what's going on in tennis outside about kind of five people in the world. Um, and that kind of, you know, that's all very anecdotal. But 
you know, it, it, it isn't the visibility is not there in the kind of national sporting discourse, which you know the media does play some role in as well, and frankly doesn't get the column inches like a cricket or a, a rugby gets in this country. I think another pro- a problem is with it as well, and this is no, this isn't a criticism of, of Schwantek and Djokovic, but they're the two best players in the world now, and people who don't who aren't their biggest supporters so i'm not talking about the novak djokovic obsessives and that kind of thing and who don't really pay attention to tennis they just don't really have strong opinions on those players they don't really that they haven't sort of got a natural charisma that that draws people in and i'm talking about this from what the kind of thing that federer had and probably to a, a slightly lesser degree nadal um and back when agassi was playing you would get people who would, if, if Agassi was playing a tennis match and you were flicking channels, you'd stay on it. You'd keep watching. Djokovic, as brilliant as he is, and he's unquestionably brilliant, maybe the best player that's ever played, I'm not sure that if you don't follow tennis and if you don't really care about those players that you're sticking on for Djokovic or Svontek playing. I think the, the really funny thing about Djokovic in this situation is there's never been a time where Djokovic has evoked more feelings from the general public than kind of right now. Like, yeah. but, but they're not based and, around his tennis, you know, though, George. No, well, this they're is not. it. This is it. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, this, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a saying in kind of sports journalism as a whole is that you just want someone to make you feel something, whether that's good or bad. It doesn't really matter. And Djokovic is definitely, you know, Make he's in that something. camp. But it's, but as you rightly say, how many people is that turning them into wanting to watch a Djokovic match or follow yeah. that? Or, you know, that there's kind of it, it's putting eyes on tennis in terms of big stories. And tennis, for all its faults, has had some great stories and in inverted commas over the last kind of five years where you're like, holy crap, that really got people talking in, you know, ways that, to be honest, things like rugby don't in terms of that kind of crossover of like, um, you know, broader society, for example. Um, mm. So yeah, it, it is quite interesting. But as you say, the charisma is not there. We said it before, haven't we? I mean, Alcaraz has has got a bit of that charisma to him in yeah, terms of his playing yeah. style, and that's that's a shoot of hope, perhaps. But you need to get him to be visible in the first place because I'm not sure that many people are talking about him outside of our lovely tennis bubble, to be honest, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, right. What a downer to end on. I know, I know. Um, have you got any other any other business? No, I think so. I broke my string quite impressively this week. It wasn't as bad as Calvin's racket break, but it was quite. How a good, did you do it? I mean, as thump. someone who's never broken a string in his life, just hit the ball quite hard. Didn't it? The, the area <laughs> where George broke his string would suggest that he wasn't hitting the ball that hard. He was hitting the ball wrong. Um, <laughs> actually, <laughs> should I tell you what it was, Calvin? Yeah. I think more embarrassingly is I'm not actually sure I broke it on the ball. I possibly broke it on the floor. I was like right. sprinting for a volley going forward and I caught it at a horrible angle into the floor. And I thought I'd like might have snapped the frame at first and yeah. um, um, just got the yeah. string. Yeah, that was a terrible, it. terrible spring break, that George. Terrible spring break. <laughs> yeah. I've also oh, managed well. to break my lat again, so really good times all around. The injuries well, continue. Lat. Ah, uh, well, it's not like actually broken, but you know, I've had George that. George is gesturing underneath his armpit for people who aren't on the. Yeah, Zoom it's under board. the armpit, but this thing is a broader kind of back problem. It's just, yeah, can't ca- right. can't catch a break. But at least my knee's okay. So probably positive. stop playing sport. 
Uh, that is all we've got time for before, because if George starts talking about all his injuries, then we really are going to run out of time. Uh, this has been Tennis Unfiltered. Please do leave us a rating or a review. Thank you very much for the two people who gave us a cowboy review this week, but it wasn't five. But we'll uh, we'll try and get a cowboy hat on Calvin soon. Uh, most importantly, please do come back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.